This episode was made possible by the generous support of listeners like you. For more information, please visit patreon.com slash author Chris Lester. You're listening to The Raven and the Writing Desk, the weekly podcast about the writings of Chris Lester and Liminal Corvid Press. This is episode 171. Hey there, folks. Welcome to The Raven and the Writing Desk. I'm Chris Lester, the creator of the Metamore City story universe. You can find more of my work at chrislester.org and metamorecity.com. This is the show where I share my fresh new fiction with you, available in audio for the first time anywhere. So let's get right to it. Here is this week's story. Today I'm bringing you Chapter 29 of my Metamore City novel, The Lost and the Least. If you're new to the show, go back to Episode 143 to hear this story from the beginning. The following recap will contain spoilers. MCPD psychologist Jared Tamlin has fallen into the hands of madmen. He was abducted from the parking lot of the Precinct 9 station house, sedated against his will, and taken to an undisclosed location underground, somewhere near the western edge of the city. There he met his fellow prisoner, Silas Kenning, Callie Linder's old mentor and the middleman between the Runners Guild and their clients. Neither Jared nor Silas has any idea who has kidnapped them, but both of them were taken when they started poking their noses into other people's business. Silas was investigating the criminal organization known as the White, an insurgency aimed at destroying the vampire crime lord Malcolm Ardvalos. Jared was trying to keep Captain Shaw, the head of the elite Special Investigations Division, from putting Detective Catherine Katane back on active duty before she was ready. What these disparate lines of inquiry might have in common is anybody's guess, but SID has just launched a new initiative to find out who's behind the White and shut the organization down. Eventually, a group of black-robed strangers arrived and took Jared to another part of the underground complex, which had the feel of an improvised temple or chapel. The altar held a religious symbol Jared had never seen before, a skull and an old-fashioned key, both surrounded by an arch and enclosed with a chain. Evidently, Jared's abductors are some kind of religious cult. They took some of Jared's blood and fed it into a jar covered with arcane markings, which immediately flared into a brilliant white light. This surprised the cultists even more than Jared, and they quickly sprang into action. Jared's wound was disinfected and closed, and all his hair and clothes were cut off and burned. The cult's spokesman, who calls himself by the code name Recludius, has taken Jared to a more comfortable set of underground living quarters, where he was fed and clothed and plied with questions about his genealogy. Jared, bewildered, decided to play along and answer the questions, in the hope of figuring out what was going on and how he might talk his way out of this situation. Recludius explained that the blood offering was a test designed to identify a certain combination of genetic and arcane markers. Jared's was the strongest match he had ever seen, and Recludius believes that this means Jared is someone immensely important to the world. He was vague about what this might mean, but he seemed to believe that if Jared can unlock his hidden potential, he could improve the lives of millions, even billions of people. 
Unfortunately, whatever this mysterious destiny might be, Reclutius feels it is too important to risk letting Jared go. He leaves Jared locked in the room, trading one cell for another, and promises to tell his superiors about Jared right away. The Lost and the Least A Novel of Metamore City Written in Red by Chris Lester Chapter 29 Jared didn't realize he had fallen asleep until he woke to the sound of the deadbolt being drawn back. He looked up and saw the cell door open. Reclutius slipped inside and shut it immediately behind him. The man was dressed in street clothes, jeans and sneakers, and a faded blue t-shirt. He was also alone. I'm sorry to just barge in on you like this, he said. Jared noticed that the man's voice was shaking. His hands fumbled with the latch on the door before he turned and faced Jared. His eyes were wide, his face pale. Jared sat up on the couch, rubbing at his own eyes. What's going on? He felt foggy, disoriented. I... I contacted my superiors, Reclutius said. I passed on the information about you, but there's been a complication. I have to go. He leaned back against the door and passed a hand over his face. Just take a moment, Jared said. Slow down. Breathe. Tell me what happened. The words came out automatically, calm and reassuring. Jared couldn't help himself. At his core, he was a man who listened to people when they were in distress. He had never been kidnapped before, but he had participated in hostage negotiations, so talking down an erratic, panicky criminal was somewhat familiar territory. In the absence of another script to follow, he found himself slipping into it on instinct. Recludius closed his eyes, took a deep breath, and let it out again. Yes, he said softly. Yes, you deserve that much. He opened his eyes again and came closer, standing at the foot of the couch. I've been chosen to perform a, a difficult mission, he said, the words coming slowly. A necessary mission, if we are to continue our work, but... He trailed off, looking down at his shoes. He took another deep breath, then continued. I made clear to my superiors how important you are. I said it as strongly as I could. I... I think they believed me. Enough, at least, to evaluate you for themselves. He paused then looking up to judge the effect of his words on Jared. Jared faked an encouraging smile. Well, that's good, right? Recludius nodded emphatically. It is. If they do as they say, if they test you, they'll see it. They will understand. He hesitated. But there are many ways they might choose to test you. Some of them will not be pleasant. He shuddered. That made Jared's blood run cold. If it's bad enough that the crazy kidnapping cultist is afraid of it. He pushed the thought aside. 
What will they do with me, if they're convinced? I don't know, Reclidius admitted. We've been looking for you for so long. We found other candidates, I know, but they didn't work out. But they weren't as strong as you. This time, I think we've got it right. Right for what? Jared asked. Recludius, I'm sorry, but what do you expect me to do? For a moment, a bright, hopeful smile dawned on the young man's troubled face. And he was young. Jared could see that now. A man barely more than twenty. Barely more than a kid. You're going to save the world, Recludius said. His voice rang with absolute conviction. Jared had no response to that. The cultist came forward then and knelt before the couch. He prostrated himself before Jared, pressing his forehead into the cold, rough stone. It was the greatest honor to find you. The sacrifice I must make now, I make for you. Soon, everyone will see what I have seen. The earth will rejoice at its deliverance. He straightened and rose, then bowed again at the waist. I will not see you again in this life, my lord. But when you come into your kingdom, when the world is set right, I pray you will remember me. His voice broke on the last phrase, and tears spilled down his face. He wiped at them fitfully, his skin flushing with embarrassment. He turned to go. Recludius, wait, Jared said. He didn't know why or what he intended to say, but the young man was clearly scared and in pain. Combine that with the willingness to do violence, and very bad things could happen. Visions of suicide bombers and mass shooting sprees flickered through Jared's imagination. You have a choice. You know that, right? You don't have to do this, whatever it is. Recludius paused. I know, he said, looking back over his shoulder. It's all right, my lord. I choose to do this. For you. Jared's heart sank. Don't hurt anyone for me, Recludius. I don't want that. I don't care how important it is. It's not worth an innocent life. Recludius looked surprised at that. Then his expression turned pensive. No, of course you wouldn't. He straightened his back and gave Jared a firm nod. As you say, my lord, no innocence will be harmed. Good, Jared said at last. That's good, Recludius. He still had no idea what the man intended, but evidently Recludius was feeling a little better. Or a little braver, at least. I should go, Recludius said. My superiors didn't want me to speak to you again, but I had to warn you. Be strong, my lord. Endure the tests. When all is said and done, they will see you are the one we need. He opened the door a crack, peeked out, then opened it wide enough to slip through. The door shut, the bolt slid too, and Jared heard soft footsteps creeping away. Morgan bade farewell to John, who was off, he said, to prepare for the evening service at Temple, and spent the first part of her shift catching up on paperwork. Her focus on the presumed serial killings over the past few days had left her with an overflowing inbox, 
and it took several hours to beat it back into submission. Once the sun was low enough for the city's towers to safely shield her, she took her lunch break and went to the Night Owl Café. She ordered her coffee and went upstairs. As promised, her co-conspirator was waiting for her. Amelie Grace, nay Andwin, looked enough like Morgan to be her sister. Vampire pale, on the tall side for a woman, with dark hair and eyes and patrician features. Morgan had never looked into Amelie's genealogy, but she suspected that their family trees shared a great many roots. As members of two of Metamore's prominent noble houses, that could only be expected. Though Morgan had known Amelie all her life, she had never seen the family resemblance until recently. Amelie had been born a theriomorph, with the vampire bat as her template species. While theriomorphs could assume a fully human form for short periods of time, they had to pay back the resulting shifting stress with an equal amount of time in full animal form. Obviously, this was a grave inconvenience under normal circumstances, so theriomorphs spent most of their time in an in-between form, one that offered them humanoid shape and hands, but did not accumulate magical stress. This was the form Amelie had worn her entire life, up until she had been turned into a vampire. After that, the limitations of the curse were broken, and Amelie had been free to assume her human form. Of course, being a vampire carried its own set of limitations. Morgan honestly wasn't sure whether Amelie had gotten the best part of the deal. Amelie nodded gravely as Morgan approached. In keeping with vampire etiquette, she did not make eye contact, instead fixing her eyes on a spot beyond the window. Her body language was alert and wary, like a predator expecting a trap. Morgan? she said, by way of greeting. Amelie? Morgan slid into the chair opposite her. She kept her tone cool and even, reining in the frustration she felt. I'm glad you responded to my inquiries. I was becoming concerned. Amelie winced. I was out of town. Church business. I just got back last night. I'm sorry I couldn't tell you beforehand. Morgan nodded in understanding. Amelie was the city's nominal head priestess for the Church of Eternal Brotherhood, a universalist faith that worshipped a divine abstraction called the Blood. While it was ostensibly an independent entity from the syndicate, the church provided the religious and cultural glue that held vampire society together. Without its influence, the syndicate would have collapsed under its own internal squabbles centuries ago. But within Metamore City, the church had effectively been co-opted by Malcolm Ardvalos, bringing the religious and secular branches of the Vampire Queen's organization under one roof. Of course, that was before Amelie had been recruited by the White Widow in her quest against Malcolm. Once Amelie knew that Malcolm had been complicit in the death of her sire, it was a foregone conclusion that she would betray him. Amelie, in turn, had brought Morgan into the conspiracy, since Morgan had her own scores to settle with the Vampire Prince. But Morgan had put conditions on that alliance. It was one of those conditions that had necessitated this risky public meeting. I think we have a rogue cell on the loose, Morgan said. They're murdering innocent people and trying to blame it on the vampires. 
She waited for her words to sink in. Amelie's fingers tightened around her coffee mug. Tell me. Morgan quickly laid out the evidence she had seen, as well as Kate's speculations that the murderers were trying to flywheel a powerful spell for use against the syndicate. I need to know if you know anything about this, Morgan said, frowning down at her coffee cup. I can't be a party to murder, Amelie. I refuse. I understand completely. Amelie's eyes flickered up to Morgan's mouth, then away again. Nothing like what you've described has been suggested in the dead drops. If any of the other cells are doing this, they aren't discussing it with the rest of us. But we do have people bringing in contraband magical supplies. For what purpose? Morgan asked. Amelie shrugged. Some are used at street level, to push back the red-affiliated gangs. Some are stockpiled for future use, and some are sold to third parties to finance our other operations. Morgan gritted her teeth. So we're arms dealers. Wonderful. Amelie looked down at the table. Her lip twisted in an expression too dark to be called a smirk. Surely you didn't think we could bring down Malcolm without getting our hands dirty? Morgan sighed and conceded the point with a small wave. How do we know the materials aren't being sold back to the syndicate through a third party? We don't, Amelie said. But if the syndicate wishes to pay us to work toward their own destruction, we would hardly stop them. And the syndicate has better supply lines than we do in any case. If they wanted such reagents, they could have them. And what if the third parties are working for someone else? Morgan persisted. Someone, perhaps, who thinks that taking innocent lives is an acceptable price to pay for power. Amelie hesitated. The silence spoke volumes. There's more, Morgan said. An important leader in the street-level community has been taken. Amelie sniffed. I didn't realize that the street had leaders. Or a community, for that matter. Morgan almost choked on her coffee. That's a fine way to talk about the people who'll be doing most of the dying in your little war. Amelie shook her head sadly. Morgan, be realistic. I have as much sympathy for the street people as anyone, but really, the problems are largely of their own making. Morgan scoffed. You cannot be serious. Of course I am, Amelie said. Her tone was regretful, her eyes filled with pity. Street people are undisciplined by nature. They're quarrelsome, unfocused, unruly. They let their children run wild, so they never learn proper respect or proper values. They've spent a lifetime looking to get rich quickly, instead of through dedication and hard work. That's why the gangs are so prominent. They promise great wealth with little effort. Morgan's stomach churned in disgust, but she kept most of it off her face. Amelie was ignorant, dangerously so, but that was hardly unusual for a woman of her upbringing. Morgan might have turned out much the same if her life had gone a little differently. Right now, the best thing we can do for the street people is to depose Malcolm, Amelie continued. He is the greatest threat to them and to everyone else in this city. Until he's gone, every effort to better their lives will be built on quicksand. Then all the more reason to preserve what remains of the foundation, Morgan countered. His name is Silas Kenning. 
He is a security consultant, but he's much more than that. Something of a guardian angel, an arbiter, and a sheriff rolled into one. Morgan related what Callie Linder had told her of Silas's disappearance. Amelie considered her coffee in silence while Morgan spoke. At last, she nodded once. I shall put out a request for the man's whereabouts, she said. If he is being held by another cell, perhaps we can negotiate for his release. Morgan closed her eyes, feeling a small sense of relief. That will be most helpful. Thank you, Amelie. The other vampire looked back out the window. Is there anything else? Morgan shook her head fractionally. That was all. I dare say it's enough. Amelie chuckled once, conceding this with a tilt of her head. I'd like to see the dossiers on these victims, if I may. Perhaps I will see a connection that you missed. Morgan felt a stab of guilt. Sharing sensitive information of that sort was unquestionably a violation of her duty as a police officer. Leaking information to anyone outside the department could allow word to get back to the criminals, who might alter their methods to escape detection. Morgan had let autopsy reports slip out of her control once before, and they'd ended up in the hands of Malcolm Ardvalos. People she loved had nearly died because of it. On the other hand, she'd joined forces with Amelie in order to stop Malcolm, to put an end to his criminal stranglehold on the city. Amelie was an elitist, but Morgan did not believe she was in collusion with kidnappers and serial killers. And, most importantly, Amelie was doing Morgan a favor. Morgan sighed heavily. Come to the morgue after midnight, she said. I'll let you see what I've found but I can't let you take anything with you. Entirely reasonable, Amelie said. She set her cup on the table and rose to her feet. She turned to leave, but her path between the tables would have taken her directly behind Morgan. By vampire logic, that would have put Morgan in a vulnerable position. Amelie waited until Morgan rose and slid around the table to the opposite side, clearing a path for her. Morgan smiled privately. Neither she nor Amelie had been a vampire for more than a few years, yet they had performed their little dance instinctively, without any prompting, explanations, or apologies. A saying of her father's came to mind. Blood always tells. Oh, father, if only you knew. Be well, Amelie, Morgan said softly. Amelie looked down at the floor and smiled a tiny bow of the lips on her carefully composed face. Good hunting, Morgan. Then she walked out, leaving Morgan alone with her coffee. And that's the end of Chapter 29. Come back next time when SID launches their raid on Nevin's house, where they make a horrifying discovery. Friedrich Nietzsche said, A good writer possesses not only his own spirit, but also the spirit of his friends. And unlike Jared's abductors, we don't even need blood magic to do it. Now, let's see how I've been doing in channeling those spirits onto the page. Here's your weekly writing report. In the last two weeks, I wrote 6,306 words in 9.25 hours, 
for an average writing speed of 682 words per hour. As of Friday night, I have gone 70 days without breaking my chain. Homecoming is now in Chapter 11, and the draft is just shy of 30,000 words and counting. One of the interesting challenges in writing an erotic romance-adventure story is figuring out how to integrate the sex scenes with the larger story. I try to follow the rule of thumb that any scene in a story should tell us something new about the plot, the characters, or ideally both. I also believe that if you're going to tell a story with multiple sex scenes, each one should be distinctly different and interesting. So my challenge with this story is to keep finding fresh, new, plot-relevant reasons for the characters to take their clothes off, and to keep the pacing of the story from bogging down too much in the process. I don't know how well I'm doing that, but for now I'm trying to keep my internal editor quiet and just focus on telling the story. Over on the Patreon campaign, we have two new patrons. Say hello to Deirdre and Oliver. I got the annual holiday cards from the printer a little over a week ago. They look absolutely gorgeous, folks, and I can't wait for you to see them. I sent out the first batch last Monday, but there are still several patrons for whom I don't have addresses. If you're a patron of my campaign and you want to get your card, check your profile page at Patreon and make sure that your correct address is listed there. If you had an address listed there before December 8th and it was out of date, please send me a message and let me know, because I probably sent your card to the wrong place. That's at patreon.com slash author Chris Lester. And now, the feedback. We have some new reviews for the podcast over at the iTunes store. An independent young Canadian woman writes that Metamore City is at once solace and inspiration. Quote, from high school to my graduate studies now, this podcast has been a high favorite. I have to express my gratitude, Chris. Your empathy with the questions and tribulations that people face when finding themselves shines through your writing. You remind us to find strength in altruism and human connection. Not to mention the crazy fun adventure of your story plots. Thank you. Should have thanked you earlier. Unquote. Oz Governor also left a review over on the Raven and the Writing Desk feed. He calls the show Gripping Urban Fantasy and says, I really enjoy getting lost in Chris's world of Metamore City. I'd love to go visit, though perhaps with an amulet and a security detail. Unquote. Thank you both very much for the kind words. Remember, folks, leaving a positive review is a great way to show your support for my work. Just follow the link in the show notes that says leave a review on iTunes, or search for Chris Lester in the iTunes store or the Apple Podcasts app on your phone. Thanks for helping to spread the word. If you'd like to share your thoughts about the show, send your feedback in text or audio to metamorecityfeedback at gmail.com. To leave a voicemail, dial area code 641-715-3900 then enter extension 255082, followed by the pound sign. My Facebook is facebook.com slash author Chris Lester. The fan group is fans of Metamore City on Facebook, and my Mastodon handle is at author Chris Lester at wandering.shop. If you like this show, take a minute and leave me a review in Apple Podcasts. It makes a big difference in helping people find the show. 
That's all for this week. I'll be back next time with more fiction, fresh off the writing desk. Until then, keep it on the bright side. This is Chris Lester, signing out. The contents of this podcast are copyright 2018 by Chris Lester and Liminal Corvid Press. The show is released under a Creative Commons, Attribution, Non-Commercial, No Derivatives license. So don't change it, don't sell it, but feel free to share it all you like. For more information about this license, please visit creativecommons.org.